Good. Yes. So, welcome to Good Friday, in a very Good Friday-ish kind of day uh, with the weather outside. Let's, let's begin with uh, a reading from the Passion narrative of, uh, of St. John. Jesus was now taken in charge and carrying his own cross went out to the place of the skull or as it is called Golgotha where they crucified him and with him two others one on the right one on the left and Jesus between them. And Pilate wrote an inscription to be fastened to the cross it read Jesus of Nazareth King of the Jews this inscription was read by many Jews because the place where Jesus was crucified was not far from the city and the inscription was in Hebrew, Latin and Greek. Then the Jewish chief priest said to Pilate, you, shouldn't, you should not write King of the Jews, write he claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. The soldiers, having crucified Jesus, took possession of his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, leaving out the tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece throughout. So they said to one another, we must not tear this, let us toss for it. And thus the text of scripture came true. They shared my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That is what the soldiers did. So, the, the, the description has so many uh, different layers of meaning and different kinds of audience. Why should he mention the clothes? Doesn't seem to be the most important meaning of the cross is what happened to his clothes. And then what happened, why pick out this tunic? And then link it to an Old Testament phrase which seems to then fulfill the prophecy. Well, I don't think we have all the answers to those questions. And perhaps the answer is, is that we don't have the answers. And as we reflect on the meaning of the cross today, especially this is one day where we focus on this, this sort of icon of, uh, of Christian faith. Um, in the Western church, it's uh, the dominant image of Christianity, whereas in the Eastern Church, it would be more likely to be, or equally to be, the Transfiguration or the Resurrection. But for us, the, the, the cross, the crucifix, is, is a central symbol 
of, Christ, of Christian faith and Christian identity. So it's good for us to give our full attention to it um, from time to time or even once a year. So what is the meaning of the cross? Well, there are two, two stories in the news at the moment which I think uh, highlight the meaning of the cross. One is, at least for us today, one is from Tesco's who put out a uh, their supermarket chain who put out an uh, ad the other day Good Friday just got better. <laughs> there are new special offers for beer and cider in Tesco's today. So you can skip the liturgy at 3 o'clock and go to Tesco's and buy beer and cider. So that says something about the meaning of Good Friday then. Of course, they immediately apologized uh, when somebody complained. But uh, it shows how, how little understanding or meaning the cross of Good Friday has in our contemporary culture. That one could just say that. It's not that, you know, you don't say Jesus is angry with them for saying it, but it, it does suggest that there's kind of a bit of a disconnect uh, between what we're doing today and what is the predominant culture we live in. Uh, in the you know in, in ancient times, there was a similarly a disconnect between the meaning of the cross as the Christians understood it, and uh, and the way the cross was understood by the rest of the of the non-Christian world, the pagan world. Uh, the cross was a, a ridiculous, shameful, humiliating sign of failure and rejection. It just didn't have any meaning. It was just like a, uh, if you ended up on the cross, you were pretty much of a failure. The other piece of news that um, uh, seemed to me to just throw a connection, a, a line of meaning uh, to the meaning of the cross is the dropping of this new bomb the mother of all bombs, M-O-A-B, Moab. They have that written on, the, on this bomb, which is like 10,000 kilograms. They've never used it before, so of course they were dying to use it. So they've dropped the bomb uh, on uh, IS, on the uh, is, is, is Islamicists, uh, terrorists in Afghanistan, I think. So, is that so new? What's, what makes it news is that it's the biggest bomb that's ever been dropped, uh, apart from a nu nuclear bomb. So, that's nothing new, but it throws light upon the, the pattern of violence which is addressed, is tackled, and is connected to the meaning of the cross. The cross itself is a violent thing, but it throws light upon the meaning of sin. And in the book of, um, of Genesis, 
the first sin is, is the sin of Cain. And Cain is unable to control, restrain his anger. And it, uh, despite God's whispering in his ear to wait and to control this surge of anger, because sin, God says, is waiting at the door ready to pounce. But uh, Cain can't control it. Self-control breaks down, and he, um, he kills his brother. That's the first sin. And really, it's the only sin. It's the way we, we turn against what is good, what is close to us, uh, in one form of violence, violent words, violent thoughts, violent actions. So, if we can see the crosses and Good Friday as being a little more than just an opportunity to get bargains or do more shopping at the supermarket, and we, s and we can begin to see its meaning, I think, in this uh, pattern of violence in human life. And of course, to do that, we have to recognize our own violence. It's no good just saying other people are violent, um, and we're not, because then we won't connect to the meaning of it at all. We have to see the cross as connecting with the violence within ourselves. And where does the violence in ourselves come from? Uh, it may be an aggressive violence, it may be a passive sort of violence, um, it may be a violence um, that we cover up with, with a sweet disposition, but actually behind it are pretty violent, or it could be a violent that violence that we can't control and burst out in anger or in physical violence even. So we have to see ourselves as connected uh, to this through our own complicity, our own sharing in this violence of human nature and the violence of human culture. What is the meaning of the cross? Well, many theological uh, explanations have been given. Uh, many of them revolve around the idea of atonement. Atonement, at one meant, uh, itself is quite a, a, a complex idea, although probably in the way that most of us were first introduced to it, when we were introduced to Christian faith, it was very simple. It's a great oversimplification. So atonement meant, um, you know, why, why was the Son of God punished like this? Well, as children, you're punished because you do something wrong. But Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, so he must have been taking the blame for somebody else. Well, children can understand that. You know, uh, in a classroom or in a family, uh, one child might take the blame for another child. And children, you know, are used to the idea that if they disobey their parents, they will be punished corrected in some way, maybe not by crucifying them, but by some other kind of wake-up or, or deprivation of rights or 
uh, whatever. So as children, it's quite easy for us to understand the cross in, in those terms. It's a very powerful explanation when it's, when it's connected to such a hugely powerful symbol. And therefore, it can take us a lifetime or more to, uh, to, to break out of that indoctrination, of that, that image, that explanation. And meditation, uh, <coughs> probably more, powerful, more powerfully for most of us than by any theological study, meditation will break that um, kind of interpretation. It breaks us out of that. It breaks us out of it because it brings us to deeper self-knowledge. And the meaning of the cross has to be connected to our own self-knowledge. It's not an abstract philosophical uh, or religious um, problem outside of ourselves. The meaning has to be found within ourselves through our connection with its meaning. So, but the atonement theory is not such a bad thing if provided we don't we don't oversimplify it or think there's only one explanation. One of the explanations, of course, for atonement was that um, uh, this was called the ransom theory, that uh, similar to the idea of substitution. So humanity had sinned. This, this was a great offense to God because you shouldn't sin against your parents. And therefore, the, the God who was all justice uh, demand, you know, has, has to be, you have to be tried and sentenced and serve your sentence. But nothing could uh, pay God's, uh, the debt that we had incurred to God. This was like a credit card debt you would never pay off. So we had, the only way it could work was for God to become human and then f for God to be able to die in Jesus uh, for us, for our sins. Well, there's something very powerful and attractive about the idea of dying for our sins. But again, we have to connect that with our own experience of sin before it makes sense, and we don't just reduce it to a kind of financial um, agreement. That uh, we were just, Jesus was, God in Jesus was paying off his own debt, was forgiving uh, an unpayable debt. Uh, there's another sort of theory, which is that um, the cross is a great moral example. Jesus was a good man, good human being. He died uh, innocently, and the way he died, and he forgave his, he forgave his executioners. This is a great moral example to us all, and how we should, how we should live, and how we should die. Um, so there are different different ways in which we we can interpret the meaning of the cross. We have to be very careful that we don't reduce the meaning of atonement, because that is what it is about, atonement, uh, to something crude or oversimplistic or infantile. It's not a 
an easy explanation. And perhaps the clue to this, James Allison, uh, the theologian, says uh, the mistake we make is to think of um, atonement as a theory that is going to explain uh, it all. But atonement originally, certainly in the biblical tradition, was a liturgy. A liturgy. So, of course, what they would do is, on the certain major feasts, they would take a, uh, a lamb or, or a goat, a scapegoat, and uh, after they had sacrificed other um, animals, they would take this goat and put the sins of the people on the goat and then send the goat out into the desert. So we scapegoat people by putting, uh, putting blame on them f for the, the trouble that we see in our world. It, we blame immigrants, we blame uh, Jews, <laughs> we blame gay people, we blame all, all, all sorts of uh, social groups, usually rather defenseless or minority groups, in order to, uh, to feel that we are solving the problem. Of course, it does solve the problem temporarily. We feel a bit better after we've blamed the Jews for the, you know, as Hitler did, for all the problems of Europe in the 1930s, or we blame the gays for gay marriage, for the, for the breakdown of, um, of, of marriage in, in Western society, or we blame the refugees for our financial crisis. So we feel a little better because there's a simple explanation and these people should be punished for it. So that's quite a straightforward scapegoat mechanism. And that is certainly present in the story uh, of Good Friday. And even one of the high priests says, it is better for one man to die for the people. So it's better that we use this Jesus of Nazareth as a kind of a scapegoat. It will take the attention off other things and relieve the, the tension in society. So. It works for a while, and it can even reconcile enemies. Because if you all agree on a common enemy, then you can be friends for a while. But of course, it's fundamentally uh, untrue, and therefore it breaks down, and the pattern has to repeat itself. The problem actually doesn't go away just because you found a scapegoat. In the um, more contemporary theory of the meaning of the cross and the death of Jesus, the, um, the scapegoat idea is present, but it's not that it's not that Jesus is just a scapegoat, <coughs> but a divine scapegoat in this case, uh, and God, the Father, makes Jesus, His Son, suffer on behalf of the people. It's not that. The big difference is what James Allison calls the intelligence of 
the victim. In, in uh, the ordinary way in which we tell the story of the, of, of the scapegoat or use the scapegoat uh, technique to deal with problems, the scapegoat is just dumb, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The, the lamb doesn't speak and is not meant to speak. Uh, but in the way we hear the story in the Gospels, we certainly can say Jesus is, is an example of this scapegoat mechanism, but the big difference is that he is intelligent. He knows what's happening. He's fully awake. It's a very important part of, the, uh, of all the Gospel narratives. It's not that he didn't suffer. Uh, there was a kind of a, a attempt to keep Jesus divine, fully divine, by suggesting that really he didn't feel anything while he was on the cross. He was just pretending. But um, that's not the point. The point is, is that he did suffer, and we can identify with that suffering, but, uh, but that he was awake conscious, and his consciousness was very deep and inclusive and comprehensive. We've, we've heard uh, during this week the, uh, the, the seven last words of Jesus from the cross, and in each of those there is an illustration of, his, of the intelligence of the victim. And this is, that's our key to getting into, into the meaning. And the other key is to, is to see that it's not about a theory, even the theory I've just suggested, which is a better theory than just to say God was very angry and he had to have this, this bloody sacrifice in order to placate him. It's not a very good theory and it's turned off a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it, which explains the Tesco um, attitude to Good Friday. It's just, just meaningless. Um, so it's, this is a better theory. I think it's more sensitive to our own experience of how we are healed, how we are reconciled, how we are made one again. But ultimately, it isn't the theory that's going to satisfy our need for meaning. It's the liturgy. And the liturgy, for example, of the Passion that we celebrate this aft afternoon um, tells the story. Uh, it gives us time to, to, for the story to enter into us more and for us to um, become one with it. But then, there's this very special moment in the liturgical year when we come to uh, venerate the cross. So I'm hoping we can do that. We haven't be, weren't able to find the cross yesterday, <laughs> but we, we're tracking it down from <laughs> last year. But if we find it, 
then we will be invited, and it's entirely free, so you know, there's no point in doing it just because other people are doing it, to come up and venerate it, which means what? It means to, to come to the cross, to kneel or genuflect or bow and kiss the cross or whatever way you wish to venerate it. And there's something very in that very simple liturgical action, that symbolic action, which we freely choose, not because we have the answer to what the cross means. We don't know fully what it means. But we are fully open to, moved by, and engaged with that meaning of the cross, which is really only, can only be found, first of all, in silence, because the meaning is too deep to reduce just to an explanation, uh, and secondly, in, in symbolic action, rather than just sort of rational argument or rational explanation. So that may, that may be some, some help or some way, I find it is anyway, to approach the meaning of the cross in a way that doesn't reduce it to a simplistic um, one-off explanation. And that also shows us that we have to be there uh, in the story and we have to, by venerating the cross, we, we, we are led into it. We are led into it. And then some of these theories, some of these theological and spiritual explanations can begin to come alive for us. Through Christ's death, St. Peter says, through Christ's death on the cross, those who turn to him are delivered from both the penalty and the power of sin. Well, there are a lot of Christians uh, who are probably demonstrating outside Tesco's today, you know, who will be quoting that. But there are different ways of understanding it or different levels at which we understand it. And those levels or, or ways of understanding it depend upon where we are in relation to it and where our own self-knowledge is, our own inner spiritual intelligence, not intellectual intelligence, but spiritual awake, awake awareness. Through Christ's death on the cross, those who turn to him, in other words, in other words, there's, there is a, a choice uh, to turn. We may turn around when we hear a noise or somebody calls our name. Um, so there may be that involuntary turning. But then we choose whether to stay facing the person who called us or, the, or to, to face in the direction that we feel we're being called. And uh, so the turning is both uh, intuitive and a matter of choice, just like meditation. We feel drawn to meditation, to go on this journey, but we have to 
we have to choose to do it every morning, every evening, and come back to it when we've stopped it. So those who turn to him are delivered. So what is it to be delivered? It means to be freed, to be unhooked from, to be set free from both the penalty and the power of sin. Well, that's a very big statement if we um, understand what sin is. So we have to understand the meaning of sin better if we are to understand the meaning of the cross because it is tied to, to sin. Uh, clearly it's an illustration of human sin, an innocent person killed in an unjust and horrific way. So it's a sinful a sinful thing, the cross itself, like torture or uh, you know, collateral damage when you, when you drop a, uh, the mother of all bombs. There's something sinful in that. Um, so sin, uh, w in what way are we sinful? Well, we do things we shouldn't do, things we would rather not do. Um, usually because we don't know what we're doing, as Jesus understood when he was on the cross and forgave. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're sinning, but they don't know what it means. Uh, and we sin when we block, when we lie, when we are controlled by our fears or, or um, controlled by our selfishness or our ego, or controlled by our wounds and our, our, our inner pain. All of that is sin. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's our fault, in a sense. But even though it may not be our fault, what does it mean to be free? If you're an alcoholic, you could say your alcoholism is a sin in, that, in this sense. But you can't be said to be, you know, free to choose, at least not until you something in you has turned and you've reached a, another place in your in your suffering to be able to free yourself or be freed from that uh, from that curse of alcoholism. So, uh, so sin isn't. We have to take responsibility for it because nobody else is. We take responsibility for it, but we don't have to see it just in terms of guilt. Guilt is a very dangerous psychological um, reaction. Shame is a better one when we realize that we have fallen short which is what the word sin in Greek means, literally. It means to fall short. It's like firing an arrow at a target, and the arrow just doesn't hit the target, it misses the target. That's the literal meaning or the metaphor of sin. So when that happens, we, we feel a little bit uh, disappointed, or we might feel shame at that, that we've let ourselves or others down, or our humanity. We've let our humanity down. 
But guilt is a very different phenomenon. Guilt cripples us. Guilt complicates the, the pattern. It tends to uh, strengthen the pattern of failure or the pattern of sin. And, uh, and guilt, of course, also has to be uh, projected outwards onto other people where we blame other people for the mistakes we made. Scapegoat is, is all about getting rid of the feeling of guilt. So what does it mean then? We're delivered from both the penalty and the power of sin by turning uh, to Christ through his death on the cross. Well, the penalty of sin is very obvious. That's, in one metaphor, it's punishment. God will punish you for your sins. But more, a deeper understanding is karma, really. It's not that God is punishing us, but as St. Augustine said, sin contains its own punishment. So if you're locked into alcoholism, it isn't that God is punishing you. The, the addiction itself is, is the punishment. Um, so you don't need to punish people who've sinned anymore. They're already being punished. So we can be delivered from the karma, the consequences, the inherent self-destructiveness of sin by turning to Jesus through his death on the cross and the very power of sin. So not just the karma, the negative consequences acquired through particular patterns in our own life, but the actual power of sin itself. To be set free from sin. It doesn't mean that we won't continue to be sinful. We will continue to be sinful, but we will now realize that we, are no, we no longer have to be trapped in the guilt-ridden, self-repeating uh, negativity of, 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 the, of that attitude to sin and the fear of punishment. We can see sin in, in another way as the medium of grace, as what opens us to, to the, the grace of forgiveness, to the grace of reconciliation, to the grace of love. <coughs> so this, I think, is an understanding of the meaning of the cross that takes us much closer to our own needs and our own intuition about how we can be healed, how we can grow. The other one that, provided we can keep friendly with God and Jesus, then we can continue to benefit from his paying off this debt. And if we don't, if we sin again, then we will be punished for it. That's, that doesn't take us very far. It, just, it, it takes us halfway or less than halfway, and it traps us in a, a very egocentric kind of religiosity where there is really no, no space for understanding the, the, the true nature of God. We don't see God as loving in that way. 
But in, in this way, which takes account of our own experience of sin, of failure, of shame, uh, these are realities. We live in a world where we drop the mother of all bombs. We live in a world where children are abused. We live in a world of human trafficking. We live in a world where we are destroying our environment. We live in a world where economic and social injustice is, is, is um, intensifying shamelessly. And the people respons responsible for it are, don't take responsibility and don't feel shame about it. So, there's no doubt there is sin in the world and we are all, in some measure, complicit in it. So the secret, I suppose, of the meaning of the cross is, first of all, to see that it's not just about an explanation. It's about a liturgy. It's about entering into the symbolism of it turning towards it, turning towards it with consciousness of our own situation, of what our own needs are. And I think the reason that that veneration of the cross is so moving, <laughs> I certainly find it very moving to, to do it and to be part of a community, a group of people who are doing it, is that um, you bring your own stuff, your own junk, your own sins and problems and mistakes, your own sense of imperfection, all of the stuff that we would rather keep you know, under wraps. We bring all of that to that moment where we lay it at the foot of the cross as the symbol, symbolic expression of it. But it's by laying it at the foot of the cross that we can do something about it and we can take responsibility for it. We're no longer in the power of sin which keeps us locked into fear and guilt and therefore into repetitive cycles. So... Um, then atonement begins to mean something very wonderful. <coughs> Not just paying off a debt, but reconciliation, or healing, or repairing a damaged relationship. We begin to see that this at-one-ment that happens through our veneration of the cross, our respect and to, of the mystery of the cross, even though we don't, can't explain it. Nevertheless, we know it, its mystery and its power. And in that turning, we feel the beginning of a liberation, being free from the power of sin and from the consequences of our own, the karma of our own actions. The other thing, of course, finally, is that uh, Meaning, deep meaning or true meaning, uh, is not one way. It doesn't come just from an explanation. It comes from entering into a paradox. And if the cross is anything, it is paradoxical. It's like the great tragedies of, uh, of Shakespeare, um, where we see um, huge forces 
contradictory forces at work um, creating uh, in the tragedies great suffering and even in the comedies actually still there's suffering but the comedies end in marriage and the tragedies end in death but they both are expressing the, the paradoxes the f great contradictory forces within ourselves the contradictions within ourselves uh, through which we, we will suffer, but through which we can also break through into, into truth, into meaning, and into freedom. So when we venerate the cross this afternoon, we don't have to justify what we're doing. We are uh, accepting the, the, uh, the contradictory forces within human existence, which the cross both, simplify, uh, both uh, symbolizes and uh, concentrates. Why does, why does this happen? Why does, you know, why don't we just read Shakespeare? Wouldn't Shakespeare be able to give us some help in all of this? So what, what does the cross mean specifically? This particular person, this particular, uh, this particular innocent victim. Well, the question is, why does God bother to intervene at all? And the only explanation for that, that is a big mystery. Why, why does God, why is God present in this way in the human situation, in the sin and the suffering and the disappointment uh, of the human? And the only explanation can really be that God loves us. And that this is the supreme expression of, of the love that flows from the source of being and brings everything that is into existence. And the love that is present, um, like the background radiation of the Big Bang, is present continually in all things at all times, God's presence in creation. And the same love that uh, uh, awaits us and wishes, desires, as love does, to spend itself or to give itself completely. If John Maine uh, used to say, when you look at the cross, many people look at it and say, this shows that the suffering of God for us. Well, it does, of course, in a way, but the deeper, the deeper explanation or meaning of that is, as he said, we should see the love of God manifest, showing forth, shining forth in the cross. Not because he's paying off a debt for us, but because um, in this way we see how God is the love 
of creation, the love of redemption, the healing process of life, and the love of our final, uh, our final state, that that love is, uh, is present and is engaged with our, our human suffering and our human need. And so th the cross then becomes uh, not a, a, um, a kind of a rebuke to us for having been so sinful, but a revelation of how much we are loved, how difficult it is to accept that perhaps, but how insatiable that love is. I thought we might, uh, before we go into meditation now, we could read a little bit from East Coca, the poem by uh, T.S. Eliot. And um, it's uh, two sections. I'll read, just read the first section. It's not, not, not very complicated language, but it's very um, beautiful meaning. And the second section we could read after meditation is more about the, um, the cross itself. The first is really about death. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark, the vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors all go into the dark. And dark the sun and moon and the almanac de Gotha and the stock exchange gazette, the directory of directors, in cold the sense and lost the motive of action. And we all go with them into the silent funeral. Nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theatre, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when, under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, 
for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. You say I am repeating something I have said before, I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. Again, let's take a moment to bring the body into the picture. Take a moment to loosen your shoulders, your neck, clear your throat, allowing the body to be still and to anchor the mind, the restless mind, in the present moment. <coughs> 